Hello and welcome to the Emotion Lab. We're taking a deep dive into what makes the combination of immersive environments and emotion AI so exciting through interviews with experts across the fields of academia, healthcare and technology. And I'm your host, Graham Cox. Hello and welcome. This week, I'm joined by Max Wiggins, the Insight and Innovation Lead for Verge, a lab group agency. Max has a background in cognitive neuroscience and works in all sorts of interesting research and delivery for Verge across a range of clients. And I'm really keen to talk to him about Max. Welcome and thanks for coming on. No worries. Happy to be here. <laughs> Brilliant. So, um, uh, Max, could you just start by giving us just a um, just a you know a, a brief understanding of your background and the kind of work that you're doing in Verge for us? Yeah, sure. So my background, as you mentioned, is in cognitive neuroscience and psychology. So sounds a bit strange applying that to marketing and digital, the space that we're in in Verge. But really, we're looking to solve commercial and societal problems using our knowledge of human behaviour. And typically, we're focused in the digital environments for doing this. Fantastic. I'm really fascinated to understand a little bit more about how you apply particularly quantitative research uh, findings to the market research work that you're doing. Your view of the value of quantitative uh, data versus the qualitative data that uh, is so often used in, uh, in, in these fields. And then to dig a little bit more into depth into, into perhaps what that means and how you do it. But uh, I'd love to start with that understanding of just what does it mean to you and your customers to drive the quantitative approach that you're focused on? Where is the value in that? Why is it important? Yeah, sure. Over time, there's been a bit of a change. Data's became the new sort of hot topic and the desire to have a quantity of data has sort of really moved forward in time. And so we've had to keep up with that. And I think Typically in qualitative research, there's a limit between how many people you can access and how many thoughts and opinions you can gather until you, you run out of time or money or whatever. And I think the beauty of quantitative research is that the data is out there for you to kind of harvest and sift through and, and you know, it's existing in different areas. And we like to think of it as taking an outside-in approach. So rather than the inside-out approach, which is normally, you know, like focus groups and interviews where I might ask you questions to try and excavate the desires and fears and thoughts from your head. And then I apply that onto whatever problem I'm trying to solve. The beauty of quant research is all these topics, emotions, thoughts, feelings, they're all online in social commentary or wherever online. And we can take the outside in approach and look at why are these things being talked about. And from that, we can formulate our understanding of emerging topics or how the industry is changing, perhaps. Interesting. And could you give us a feel for the kind of questions that you're answering on behalf of your customers? Well, typically it's, it's questions that they can't answer themselves and that they haven't been able to answer through other research methods. So some areas we're quite heavily focused on are looking at how are competitors positioning themselves differently to us. But a big one is to do with audience intelligence. So what do our customers want? Who are our customers? What are their thoughts? What are their feelings? And you know, who will our customers be of tomorrow? That's a key area, I think, in this in this space. It's the, the prediction of knowing what to expect so that you can prepare and adjust your strategy accordingly. 
Absolutely. And you say your primary field is digital. You're talking about across not just web content, but also social as well, is that? Yes, yes. We have, um, we have our disposable at Virgin Lab a technique called comparative linguistic analysis. Bit of a mouthful, which we've mentioned, but it's a bit of a much deeper dive on social listening as we typically know it. So we can we comparatively look at uh, different data sets online. So it could be Twitter conversations on plastic packaging, for example. The comparative element is key because we might compare this from 2019 to 2020 on you know hundreds of thousands of words of conversations. And from that, with our analysis, we're able to unpick the language, the phraseology, the sentiment, topics of interest in that raw data to see just how you know areas and topics and thoughts are changing over time. We like to go a bit deeper than the, the traditional uh, you know, sentiment score, thumbs up, thumbs down. We like to look at what are the specific words or grammar even, which might indicate how customers or audiences are feeling and how that is changing over time. How automated is that process or how uh, how much human ana- data analysis is involved in that kind of linguistic sentiment mm. analysis? It's a good question and it's a bit of both. Unfortunately, it's not as automated as you might hope. There is a level of human overlaying that has to be done with this so the tool in itself can kind of scrape and analyze the publicly accessible content that we want to look at and it will perform the comparisons there so we can see only the significant differences in uh, words and that's based on an over or under indexation so in 2020 people might be talking more you know 8.9 times more likely to talk about the government than in 2019 But the key is the tool kind of spits out the data. And that's where we really have to apply our knowledge from psychology and human behavior to understand exactly what this data means. And I think a thing which I've always kind of tried to advocate from the start is not to just hand off on, here's the insight, there you go. We always try and give actionable recommendations or suggestions for those insights. So we found this, but here's where we think you should go. And that's typically where we work closely with clients and say, you probably understand this data more than us because you live and breathe in this area. We're here to kind of assist and we're here to to interpret that data and help you in the best way forward. Excellent. Yeah, it's, it's you know, we, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about collecting biometric data, spe- mm. particularly from uh, individuals with uh, and how different researchers uh, and Demtech ourselves are using that to try and interpret emotional response and thereby predict behavior to given stimuli. But I guess one of the, the hardest things isn't understanding the biometrics itself, but really understanding what what it means, interpreting the actual impact of that data. Mm. And I wondered, you know, so you've kind of played to that already in talking about the fact that you want you try to provide those insights back to your clients as to what the data might actually mean. Mm. I'm quite interested to understand how you think biometric data particularly is used in market research industry and how effective that is in answering the kind of questions that your customers have. Does it really work or does it really come down to the human interpretation at the end? Very good question. And one with, you could probably talk a long time with this one. I think biometric data, interpreting it is super important to have very good context of what you're you know, what you've presented to uh, the participant, for example, because ultimately the context that they're in, 
the way you're testing them, everything will have some degree of effect on their physiological responses. And I think the wider you can understand the area, the stronger you'll be able to interpret with sort of a high degree of validity. I think it's worth noting before doing any of this research and sort of the caveat I always say to clients is that the findings are there, but it's your interpretation of the data and what this means. And it's always important to get that out straight away because everything is an interpretation. You know, it's only really physics. You can go down and maths that it, you're not really interpreting. It's, it's a proof. And I think for us, we tend to look at a mixture of research and data to, to formulate our understanding of that interpretation. So a mixture of biometric uh, responses mixed with maybe qualitative responses from clients and a mixture of quant data as well. Then you're looking at quite a, a holistic approach. You're looking at quite a overarching set of measures, and if if they kind of align quite consistently, you can be quite confident that you found something that isn't down to bias or chance or individual differences, and it might be a genuine finding. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, you know, context is absolutely everything, and it's the question of how tightly you can define that. Uh, mm. context that drove the specific uh, stimuli that you see. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been one of our biggest things that we've tussled with across the years is, uh, is, is really defining down exactly how we programmatically understand context, which we can do when we're working in our virtual reality simulations, which is where we do a lot of our work at the moment. But uh, as soon as you take that out, even to, to interaction with 2D screens, where the real world still intrudes. You you could be looking away from the screen. You could be surprised mm. by something completely different. You've got all of the, the the stimuli that exist in the in the normal world around you that you can never be entirely sure what those biometrics mean moment by moment. Yeah. We used to run a lot of biometric testing kind of on going through online journeys um, and measuring participants' responses. So a mixture between kind of biometric and user experience testing. And it's exactly that. It becomes more and more difficult to understand if the stimuli you've shown them is what's driving a biometric response compared to they may have remembered that they forgot to pick something up from the shop or, you know, it's it's quite hard to nail down. But I think on that note, as you said, controls are super important. And I think accurately setting the baseline, baseline kind of biometric behavior and understanding that personal context is a super important factor because from from my ex brief experience with biometric testing individual differences are huge in people how they you know how their eye movements are how they process pages um, their sort of facial coding in itself so i think it's super important to set that baseline threshold of how they might typically behave from a physiological point of view before you then put them in a kind of an artificial simulation then analyze their behavior completely i mean it, it does bother me that most of the world of commercial emotional an analytics that i can see which is mm. largely driven by camera-based an analysis of facial expressions works on a universal model of expressivity and relevant emotion which is exactly as you say clearly flawed because our personalized responses are different so whilst we all smile we use smiles differently across ourselves across each other you know we, we we some of us are very smiley some of us are not some of us smile mm. very very large expressions for quite a uh, um, a small amount of felt emotion and vice versa and so really you can only understand 
somebody's own visible display of emotion by understanding understanding a baseline of that person to begin with. Mm. Uh, I think it's absolutely key, and it's why we have majored on use of sensors rather than <clears throat> rather than use of cameras over time because of the the multimodal approach that we can take and the depth the the greater depth of baselining and personalization we can build into our models you know combined with contextual understanding i think that's absolutely key we were talking earlier about um your use of personalization in some of the research work that you did and talking about how you found the personalization of content and delivery reduces cognitive load yes in it was a, in a specific context i was really interested whether you could bring that back up again and talk a little bit about the work you did there and and, and what you found in that that area yeah sure so as, as a kind of general rule of thumb uh there's there's a huge movement towards personalization in general go back from my times during my master's study in psychology cognitive neuroscience this makes complete sense it's a thing called the availability heuristic, which is when something's available and readily accessible in your mind, you're more likely to think about it. You're more likely to interpret it uh, faster and with higher relevance. So the classic example is when there's been loads of tornadoes going on in America, for example, and you ask someone, where do more people die from? Is it from tornadoes or is it from car crashes? When a lot of tornadoes are occurring and they're bombarded by the news and everything, people overestimate tornadoes as the higher cause of death when in fact actually it's by far car crashes and i think the key thing with this is with personalization you're making information really available and it's salient for, for the person to interpret and if something is salient and already you know in line and consistent with how they perceive the world they're much much quicker to interpret it with ease and it becomes a lot more intuitive. Yeah, makes complete sense. Absolutely. In in context with delivery to the kind of media or content and customers that you're dealing with, what does what does that personalization actually mean? How does that actually get implemented? If can you give us an example? Yeah, sure. You can often get signs by how a person is interacting with a page for example. So if someone is going through a user journey, um, filling out car insurance, and they might be going through very quickly, filling all the filling the fields out, skipping, going over. Just from that response, you can gather that this person might be time poor. They might have done it millions of times, so they're not, you know, not that interested. Or they might just, you know, want a quick summary of information. In contrast, someone might go through the the page and click on all the help icons as they're going along slowly methodically typing clicking typing scrolling clicking just in that instance you can kind of codify two very different people entering your page and from that what we try to do at verge is we we, we learn based on the behavior and based on the kind of intentionality uh, that someone is on the page and from there subsequent pages might be adapted and personalized according to that person's trait so Person one might be fed, you know, a graph, a very top level summary on the next page with a continue button. So shorter pages, which they can zip through faster and faster so that they get the sense that they're, you know, moving quicker to their, their end goal. Whereas the more kind of conscientious planner, perhaps, they might get a detailed breakdown, which they can scroll through and, and process over time. And I think as we move forward, um, 
topics such as vulnerability and accessibility are massive in this area. So understanding how someone might be processing the page or, or what, you know, for example, on certain charity websites where inherently the main sort of users going to that site might have a neurodiversity or vulnerability, these pages on that site should be personalized to that person's traits so that they can interact with it as easily as possible and ultimately um, get what they want and be served appropriately, not just be served for the kind of middle of the bell curve for everyone in society. And I think that's the that's the key that we're we're trying to do at Verge. We're trying to say you don't need to aim for the middle of the bell curve and make these journeys as you know standardized as possible. They can be personalized to different people. And ultimately that that's what's going to lead to the most in, highest engagement. Uh, absolutely and the greatest rate of completion satisfaction but of the individual etc etc you know you're talking to my heart really because that view of the ability to personalize experiences in order to drive desired behavior to nudge people in the right direction towards the behavioral choices you want to make is kind of fundamental to the medical work we've been doing at mtech from from our very beginning uh, our 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 roots and our ultimate goals, in fact, lie in the ability to provide uh, therapeutic interventions to people that help them to improve behavioral traits, reduce anxiety, deal with phobias and other issues, improve mood, etc. And the way to do that has to be around understanding the, the personal level of uh, anxiety re receptivity that the ind individual has, how triggered they, can, they are by content, making sure that you deliver them an appropriate level of stimulus. And mm. in the process, using uh, gamification of content to nudge them towards the desired outcome, the, the, desi the outcome that they seek themselves. It's an absolutely fascinating area and one that that is still i think very early on in in immersive real-time adaptive content i can see how it can be as powerful in interactions with static content like web content as long as you've got a journey that you that you're going through so you have the ability to collect the personalized data at the first in the first instance and yeah. then use that through the rest of the experience as you go forwards yeah completely and i think um I think it's where firms are going to have to get quite innovative with their approach. And it's not all about sucking data. It's about getting the right quality of data. So if someone lands on a travel website and is looking at trips in different locations, you can categorize quite clearly based on what people are clicking on. If they want a kind of adventure, off the cuff, one-way ticket, holiday, or they want something a bit more standard a bit more planned and assured than than the other customer and i think i think with that you can apply some understanding from psychology a, a bit about that person you know person number two might be a bit more conscientious they might have a, a lower threshold for openness to new experiences this is just going off the five factor model of personality from that knowledge when you next send them an email in your newsletter marketing you know that the content, the blog, which was written about a nomad's trip to the Himalayas might be more suited to someone who wants that adventurous type, whereas the, you know, the best places to visit in Italy while staying for a week, that might be better suited for the other customer. So I think ultimately there's a, there's a level of data capture, but on top of that sits an, a strong understanding of psychology and what that means. And I do think we're in a kind of 
sadly in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, which did this to not not the right level and were too invasive and and not transparent enough. Um, it, it's an area which is going to massively increase where we're, we're looking to psychologists and neuroscientists to try and understand just what digital behavior means. And this is where new kind of new academic fields such as computational psychiatry are exploding at the moment, where they're combining that set of behavioral online data with machine learning to work out what are the almost the digital residues that are associated with particular traits and what does that mean how can we therefore um, nudge them appropriately fascinating so you say that you know companies need to be more aware of these things i can absolutely see that you roll that forwards a little bit more talking about these nascent fields of computational psychology and the application of the machine learning to collated online data sets the you know the the barriers to entry for machine learning is now are now dropping so rapidly with some of the mm. fantastic tool sets that are available online the breadth of people rolling out of universities with good data science degrees etc so becoming really mainstream what you know roll forward a few years the online experience how do you see all of this actually affecting the way that companies deliver their online content and that we we consume it. Do you have a, a view of what it might mean to us in the future? I feel exactly as you said that the way forward for many of these companies is going to be investing in kind of machine learning and automated services, which can analyze how a person's behaving on your site, what they're clicking on, what their kind of uh, intent is, what's their scroll time, and then it will automatically serve them the pages uh in 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 the journey which might be best suited to their traits and i don't know maybe in 10 years time these uh sort of ai will be able to generate pages themselves based on content so it's actually to you know on the fly adapted curated content for particular types of customer i think um i think we're definitely moving that way i've i can't remember the name of the company but i saw quite recently someone is doing personalized gifts according to how consumers behave so the gifts are quite um they're proven really good for engaging people on different sites they're in interactive that level of kind of using ai to personalize gifts according to how you behave on site i think we're going to see a massive shift towards that direction it's that level, as you said, it's that level of computational psychology to understand what the data means. And I think whilst there's going to be an influx of kind of, you know, data scientists, machine learning experts, there, there needs to be that mirrored increase in sort of psychologists and designers and UX experts who can interpret that data. Because once you've got the data, it's okay tagging people and identifying this type of person, but you need an effective especially for digital, an effective way to change the experience in order to align their interests. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think you know, there's one, one kind of future point that's really interesting to ponder is the kind of connection between the world that you inhabit in your day-to-day -day life and the world that I inhabit in my day-to-day -day life. So you working on kind of the frontier of behavioral analysis of content and how that content can be delivered most effectively on what is the most effective content to deliver to a given audience. And my world in reading personalized biometric data currently in fully immersive experiences inside virtual reality, but working towards 
an expected future where augmented reality starts to hit, to hit the world where you know it's my 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 belief that we're moving fairly rapidly towards a world where where open world immersive experiences become entirely possible through augmented glasses so the ability to overlay data and content on the real world using a um, you know glasses interface between your eyes and the and the rest of the world and how that combination of the two could ultimately deliver totally personalized experiences in 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 augmenting the information space around us what we see how we see it how we interact with individual shops organizations businesses etc it's uh, it's an interesting future definitely i think um you know the world is moving in that direction and the only real caveat is the the um accuracy and and how how realistic those ar and vr experiences are because you know it's like the uncanny valley if it's if it's slightly off it doesn't feel right and we're not as receptive towards it but as time goes on it's 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 going to happen and as we've seen in kind of in, in my area of expertise um I, I sort of wrote this down quite a while ago and said how if there's an ability for online clothing shops to, you know, project a kind of AR representation of you to try on the clothes remotely, you'd be more likely to purchase it. And from my experience in psychology, it's due to you can you've got that self-reference effect. You can see how it looks like on you. You've got a thing called endowment effects. So something is more valuable when you own it. And just by seeing that, you know, clothes on you, to a degree, you're slightly committed and you are owning it at a virtual sense. And, you know, as we go forward, I've seen more and more companies are, you know, moving forward with this type of software because it's that beautiful middle ground between using AR and VR design to, to engage customers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and completely, um, completely doable right now you know as you say with the with the limits of uh of realism as they are that nevertheless the ability to provide virtual try-ons etc is now uh it's now a very real thing out there in in apps and in immersive experiences so mm. that kind of thin end of the wedge i guess absolutely so i know that in in the lab group max you're you're doing some um some some actual grant funded research work as well could you just tell us a little bit about what you're doing there yeah, sure. So I'll give you the the, the background. Uh, about eighteen months ago, uh, maybe two years ago, we noticed that in financial services firms there was this push towards better addressing the needs of vulnerable customers. And when you think face to face, you know, in banks they're trained to uh, detect if someone might be vulnerable or might shouldn't be sold a product which you they might be after. It's quite easy as humans. We have a great nose for sniffing this out and uh, and you know gauging people. Over the phone, there's things called voice stress analysis, which sort of looks at your the, the modulation and the pitch in your voice to see if you're stressed or might be under duress when you're applying for a particular financial product. And then we looked online. And there's an extremely low amount of uh, interventions and kind of reg tech out there to help people who might be vulnerable. And the problem is financial services industries have pushed customers to online and to digital naturally, as, as in many 
nearly all other areas in different industries. However, you know, it's, it's almost been driven by conversion and the marketing teams to get people through that journey, to get a product, to get the sale and the outcome. Make that journey, make those pages going through that loan application, for example, as easy as seamless as possible. So we, we call this frictionless. Reduce all frictions so that someone can get from A to B as simple as possible. And a while ago, and in many other areas, such as uh, retail or buying something you want, this is absolutely fine. However, more and more as we monitored kind of what the financial conduct authority was saying, we realized that vulnerable customers were getting served products which they shouldn't have been served. And there's this misconduct going on that the financial services companies online weren't addressing the needs of their vulnerable customers. So over a jug of beer um, in a bar in Soho, we, we asked the question, what if you could detect if someone was vulnerable in a loan application journey, for example, purely based on their browser behavior? So we didn't want any IP address. We didn't want any big data pull-ins. We just wanted to look here and now, can we do a on-the-fly assessment to work out if someone's vulnerable? And if this were possible, we'd be able to adapt that journey to you know, give them more information or help them maybe call up someone that they might need, which they might not be getting typically in the journey. With this kind of hypothesis in mind, we applied for a grant by Innovate UK about 18 months ago, and we were successfully awarded that to run a proof of concept project exactly in this area. And to date, we've done quite a bit of research and we're currently working with academics from City University of London, who are the psychology and machine learning sort of specialist there. And we're, we're, we're targeting this question. So we're, we're just about to come up to our online quant test where we've built, can't give too much away in case anyone's listening, but we've, uh, we've, we've built a test where people will go through kind of faux uh, loan application journey. They'll play some games associated with risk seeking and kind of long-term versus short-term planning. And from that, we're going to suck out all of their behavioral data only. So we're looking at kinetic behavior, such as scrolling, clicking, typing facility, deletions, re-editing, everything you can think of. And the intention is to run that through machine modeling to work out if there is an algorithm which can successfully indicate and predict whether someone might be vulnerable based on a set of behaviors. Because if you once, you, once you're able to detect this, and we accept there might be false positives, then you can uh, address that customer's needs in the best way forward. So you can change their journey on the fly to better serve them. Fantastic. And vulnerable in this context, you're, you're referring to specifically to their appetite for, for risk, their risk-taking behavior in the way that they treat the data or something more fundamental than that? We're going by the FCA's definition of financial vulnerability. And the best way to think about that is there's, there's four drivers of financial vulnerability. It can be low capacity, low resilience, significant life events, so uh, bereavement or a loss of job. This is almost transient vulnerability. And also health, so mental health effects. Those can drive people to be in a more 
um, financially vulnerable situation. And I don't need to say this, but the detriments COVID-19 has had on financial vulnerability have just been absolutely overwhelming, which has made this, this work, you know, even more important today because we need these methods to, to detect if someone might be vulnerable and then we can help them. And as we found uh, just from sort of desk research, the, the current methods in place by financial services, they, people don't want to self-disclose if they might be vulnerable because they're afraid of being treated differently. They often don't mention it. And that's why we need to, you know, try and innovate and, and provide these novel methods which can help everyone. Because what we're working towards is hopefully if, and this is purely based on science, we accept that if the findings don't prove true, you know, we're moving forward in science, we can, it's, it's a win-win solution because we can, you know, dynamically adapt the journeys for potentially vulnerable people. And we can leave the journeys alone, not touch them, not interfere for those who are, who are deemed safe and don't need any assistance. So it's really a kind of personalized approach, uh, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And that ability potentially to recognize emotional frailty, um, vulnerability, as you say, from uh, relatively small amounts of data in, uh, in completing a, a form is, uh, is potentially fascinating. I presume you're going to, in order to build models that are robust, you're probably going to have to collect quite a bit of data to build something that is, uh, that is viable. But the, the potential in that is huge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, we've, we've got a sort of whole team with City University who are experienced in this area. And the online test, we're hoping to get around you know, 750 participants going through it, quite an even split between uh, vulnerable and non-vulnerable cohorts uh, and the data really is that refined it's um scrolling clicking nearly everything you can think of because kind of our initial conception was that if someone is vulnerable that typically has to manifest it, manifest itself some way in order to be a present vulnerability um, just as if you're feeling slightly stressed or, or anxious or in a threat situation your autonomous nervous system changes you might have more blood going to your muscles you might get tense you might you know start shaking a bit more start moving a bit more all of these are physical manifestations that happen to everyone it's universal it's evolutionary psychology and so our question is can this happen at a level of keyboard and mouse use for example that is really fascinating and uh, what's the timescale for this? When might I be reading about this in the paper? <laughs> we, we've actually been published in a few places already, just touching around it. But the, we're, we're coming up in the next few weeks to finish building the online test. I'd say late summer this year, we should have some hard results uh, that have came in, either thumbs up, thumbs down. And then we'll be starting to talk with a number of effective clients and banks about how we can how we can work with them to to help them that you know that's our end goal here we want to produce a bit of regulatory technology which can sit on the online environment and help help address the customers needs yeah that's fantastic max i wish you the best of luck with it fingers crossed it's uh, thank you it shows a lot of promise
been a fantastic overview of behavioral and, and emotional analytics for in, in the commercial world that you've given us in the last half an hour or so. I, I really appreciate it. If there's anybody out there that wants to know more about the work that you that they that you do uh, yourself and in uh, in the lab group, how should they get hold of you? Feel free to reach out on the website or you can reach out on my personal email, which is max at lab.co.uk. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Max. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking, speaking to you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you, Graham. <laughs> awesome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Emotion Lab. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us across social media to keep up with the latest in Emotion AI. Thanks.